Welcome back to another episode of Reform, Reproduce, and Reconstruct, where the womb is mightier than the sword. I'm your host, Jeremy Walker, and we're going to be discussing Christian faith, reproduction, the family, and the need for evangelizing and reconstruction of the world around us, man, and society. Now, today's episode is going to be entitled, The Bedroom is Mightier Than the Ballot Box. I want to go ahead and get us started by discussing the subject because people have an idea power is at the top. Political world, Washington, the elections coming up here in 2020, and the only thing anybody can ever talk about is voting, 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 and what we're going to do about it and how you're supposed to vote and everything in between. So I want to go ahead and start us off with some something light and fun it's a non-Christian's perspective, George Carlin, of all people. If you're not aware who George Carlin is, George Carlin is a comedian. He's passed away in the last couple of years. But he had a very, very keen sense of comedy and a way of observing the world for sometimes exactly what it is. And although, of course, I would not agree with how he does things or his viewpoints, I think his viewpoint on the ballot box and voting was very keen, and in many ways better than most Christians. So I want to get us started by playing this for you. So bear with me, and here is George Carlin also, as I said. You can find George Carlin's stuff on the internet. Uh, YouTube is a wonderful place to find George Carlin's stuff. I encourage you, if you are interested in listening to those things, to look him up and to listen to some of the other things that he had to say. But beware, his comedy routines are precise and well thought out, but they can also be very vulgar. So, caution to the listener. Now, there's a few things here in my clip that I have of George Carlin, but I have, you could say, edited them out. Uh, censored them, I guess is a better word for it. But here we go. George Carlin on politicians voting and the ballot box. One thing you might have noticed I don't complain about politicians. Everybody complains about politicians. Everybody says they suck. Yeah. Well, where do people think these politicians come from? They don't fall out of the sky. They don't pass through a membrane from another reality. They come from American parents and American families, American homes, American schools, American churches, American businesses, and American universities, and they're elected by American citizens. This is the best we can do, folks. This is what we have to offer. It's what our system produces. Garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> if you have selfish, ignorant citizens, if you have selfish, ignorant citizens, you're going to get selfish, ignorant leaders. And term limits ain't going to be any good. You're just going to wind up with a brand new bunch of selfish, ignorant Americans. So maybe, maybe, maybe it's not the politicians who suck. Maybe something else sucks around here, like the public. Yeah, the public sucks. There's a nice campaign slogan for somebody. The public sucks. F hope. F hope. Because if it's really just the fault of these politicians, then where are all the other bright people of conscience? Where are all the bright, honest, intelligent Americans ready to step in and save the nation and lead the way? We don't have people like that in this country. Everybody's at the mall. Scratching his ass, picking his nose, taking his credit card out of his fanny pack and buying a pair of sneakers with lights in them. 
So I have solved this little political dilemma for myself in a very simple way. On election day, I stay home. I don't vote. I don't vote. Two reasons. Two reasons I don't vote. First of all, it's meaningless. This country was bought and sold and paid for a long time ago. The they shuffle around every four years. Doesn't mean a thing. And secondly, I don't vote because I believe if you vote, you have no right to complain. People like to twist that around, I know. They say, they say, well, if you don't vote, you have no right to complain. But where's the logic in that? If you vote and you elect dishonest, incompetent people and they get into office and screw everything up, well, you are responsible for what they have done. You caused the problem. You voted them in. You have no right to complain. I, on the other hand, who did not vote, who did not vote, who, in fact, did not even leave the House on Election Day, am in no way responsible for what these people have done and have every right to complain as loud as I want about the mess you created that I had nothing to do with. So I know that a little later on this year you're going to have another one of those really swell presidential elections that you like so much. You'll enjoy yourselves. It'll be a lot of fun. I'm sure as soon as the election is over, your country will improve immediately. Thank you very much. Okay, now that was George Carlin discussing the subject, and as I said, you can find that on uh, YouTube. You can listen to the rest of it if you desire to do so. But that was his take on the concept of voting, the importance of it, or the lack thereof, and, of course, the problem at hand. And his answer, of course, was the problem was that politicians aren't the issue. The public is. And if you're not going to have a good public, you can't expect to have good politicians. So in other words, George Carlin very aptly put his thumb on the problem. The problem is the public. The problem is all of society from the bottom up. One thing I want to go over here are three things as we're going to be going through these three sections. Number one, this is something you're going to have to accept from the start. You're going to understand this concept of the ballot box and the bedroom. Number one, God governs the world, not man. Number two, the government is not destroying you or your family. The one that's going to destroy you and your family is you. And number three, governments get better when the people that it governs get better. Bottom up. So let's go ahead and start with our first section about who governs the world. And I've already said, of course, that God governs the world, not man. And I know that a lot of people argue about this. People like to get into the voting subject, the lesser two evils, and so many other things. And George Carlin went so far as to say it didn't matter at all, bought and paid for. He saw no purpose in voting. Um, George Carlin, actually, if you listen to his stuff, and uh, you know, I encourage you to do so if it's something you're interested in doing, he was a flat-out non-Christian humanist, and uh, he secularist humanist, and he pretty much was hoping that a giant asteroid would come and just wipe out the planet because he saw no hope. But that's what you get. When you take away Christianity, when you give them a worldview that has no purpose at the beginning, no purpose now, and nothing when you're dead, what do you get except give me oblivion, give me nothingness, just wipe us all out because we're nothing. 
There's also no redemption. Um, there's no hope for anything. And so pessimism is the, is the blanket that these people wrap themselves in because there is nothing else. But for us as Christians, and this is important with this concept, God is the governor over all the nations. Psalms 22, 27 through 28 says this, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. Pretty clear. See, God's kingdom is everlasting, and he does what he wants in heaven and on earth. And Daniel 4, 34 through 35, goes over that. Quote, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes into heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. And I promised, sorry, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Unquote. People like to argue, discuss, just become cantankerous about the subject. Fretful, as Christians, fretful over the subject of who's going to be in office next. It's very clear that the Bible doesn't teach such silly doctrines about, oh my gosh, we have to have the right votes. You don't have to worry about that. I'm going to get into that in a minute. About voting. George Carlin didn't think it was of any import. What about you? You tuned in to listen to me, apparently. Maybe like the title of the episode, The Bedroom is Mightier Than the Ballot Box. Is your vote changing the world? If you get in there and click your little button, are you going to change America? If you get a mail-in ballot, are you going to fill in that box? For the president that you want and change the world by doing so? Is that how it's done? Are you going to become partaker in the governance of the United States by doing so? Do you have the faith that your vote is actually counted? Do you have the faith that and knowledge that something's not rigged, like George Carlin said? How do you know it's not bought and paid for? How do you know that somebody didn't steal your ballot in the mail. How do you know that somebody didn't rig it by signing up dead people and filling in ballots when it's not and steal the election? How do you know any of this stuff? Here's a better question. Why do you care? Why is it something that you're so fretful about? Got to discuss all the time and even almost violently at times. It's clear that God's got things under control. If you have any doctrine, I'm just giving you two passages here which make it very clear that he's the one doing it. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the head of gold, if you're not familiar with who King Nebuchadnezzar is. He was the one with the mightiest kingdom. All the rest were paupers compared to his kingdom. God took him out by ripping his mind from him, turning him into an animal. Nobody did it. It wasn't the ballot box that did that to King Nebuchadnezzar. God stripped his mind from him and turned him into an animal, scratching on all fours in the dirt. 
And just because God preserved his kingdom for him and gave it back to him once he gave him back his mind. That's the King Nebuchadnezzar standing up and saying, we are nothing. You think you're influencing the world with your little ballot box and your mail-in vote? And you bubbled in the right corner? This was the dude who was in charge of the world. Charge of the world. The greatest kingdom that there was going to be from that time on, besides Christ's kingdom, that is. And this is his conclusion. God does whatever he wants in heaven and on earth. No one can stay his hand. Nobody can stop him. Fill in your bubble. Cast your vote. But don't think you're controlling the world by it. God will do what he wants. You can get every Christian on the planet to try to vote Trump or try to vote third party or try to vote this or try to vote that. But if God wants Biden to be in, Biden will be in charge. He wanted Obama in for eight years. He wanted Clinton in for eight years. He wanted Hitler in charge until he was killed. He wanted all kinds of people all around the world, good and bad, in charge for one reason or another. Your vote isn't what's changing the world. God's choice is what's changing the world. Next, God raises up kings and governments for his purpose. That's important. His purpose. Romans 9, 17. Quote, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Pharaoh in Egypt, once again, ruled, Egypt did, the known world, many times. God raised up this king right before Moses came in so that he could break him down and beat him down, and he would be a byword throughout all the world of what God did to him. You saw that when Joshua and the Israelites came into Jericho, the people were peeing in their pants, so scared of them. So scared they're already defeated before they showed up because God did that to Egypt. God wanted Egypt in charge. God wanted for 400 years Israelites to be in, in slavery. So yeah, go be against slavery, sure. Um, you know, vote against slavery, sure. Be against this, be against that. But who is allowing the world to operate as it's operating? Who is allowing abortion to be legal in the United States that so many kids are being murdered every single day. Who is, who is doing it? Who made that decision? The voter? Roe v. Wade? The Supreme Court? You just got to get the right president. You just got to get the right Supreme Court guy on there. We just need enough people who become abolitionists. All that's good. All those are good viewpoints to have. But the idea that for some reason you don't understand that God's allowing these things to take place is a complete mishap in theology, understanding, and doctrine. It is God that has done this. It is God that has done it for his purpose, allowed these people in there. Everything happens according to his purposes. The Christian can just get to work. They don't have to worry about who's the Supreme Court justice. They don't have to worry about who the president is. God took out Nebuchadnezzar without the help of any of us. There wasn't a single person. Daniel didn't help anything. Didn't do a darn thing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were there. Didn't do anything. 
God did it all on his own. See, God uses not just powerful people, Supreme Court justices' positions, and we just got to get enough votes and get the right presidents. God uses ordinary people to influence national events at times. There's one story in the book of Judges where J.L., a woman, kills, of course, Cicero with a tent peg. And at the end, Deborah talks about it, says that the stars in the heavens were at war with him on that day. Nature itself was against him. He couldn't win. Strolled into a tent with a woman who was faithful to God. She lied to him. Lay down, have some milk. I'll keep you safe. And as soon as he dozed off, she put a tent spike in his head and the war was over. Simple woman. Didn't do anything special. Took out a head and leader of the military at the time. In Esther, we have another interesting uh, story. Esther 4, 13 through 14. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall there be, sorry, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. That thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the, uh, come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Now this was an interesting part of the story in Esther because uh, she was, you could say, drafted into being queen in a certain way. And she became queen. There were many evil men plotting and planning and all kinds of things moving backwards in the background. But little old Mordecai, doing his job, just a servant. I mean, he, he had position, of course. But on one day, he heard people plotting against the king, and he told on them. And they ended up getting killed, and people forgot about Poor old Mordecai there. Didn't put much more thought into it. And then when Haman's ultimate conspiracy, throughout conspiracy, ultimate power was given to him by the king. Top of the top of the top of the top of the top. When his, his success was at its brink, the king just couldn't sleep one night and had the chronicles read to him. And just so happened that there was Mordecai spoken about how he saved the king and the king hadn't done anything and Haman was sitting outside waiting for the king the exact same moment and the king calls him in asks him what to do with the man that God the king deserves to favor or wants to favor and of course Haman thinks it's him that's not him it's his enemy Mordecai he has to give him honor in the streets which practically killed him and eventually did kill him because the person he was trying to kill the Jews and Mordecai Esther was one of them the queen. And, of course, Haman didn't know that. But here's Mordecai in this passage saying, maybe this is why you're here. Who knows why the king is forced to give our Jewish Hebrew girls to a pagan king to become the queen? After all, that's against God's law to marry anybody who's not a Christian. But Esther did, being forced to do so. Well, who allowed her to be forced to do so? Well, that would be, once again, God. Nobody took swords and went after the king to try to protect the sanctity of the Jewish and Hebrew, Hebrew women? Nope, she became queen. Why? God wanted her there. 
God wanted her to be queen. And as you know, the story plays out. That's exactly who was used to stop and overthrow all the evil plots and plans of these men. These two people, same family, who had no idea what was going on until the last second. See, God's plans include us with or without our understanding and consent. God doesn't ask us if we want to play part in his, his little story. He just uses us, the good and the evil. The story of Joseph was very much the same way. The brothers hated Joseph and sold him off into slavery, thinking that they were doing evil against him, getting their way. The person getting their way was God. And Joseph ended up a slave, ended up in jail, ended up prime minister, saving the entire continent, including his own family. That was not the Joseph's plan. That was not the king's plan, the pharaoh. It wasn't his brother's plans or Potiphar's plans. Nobody knew what was going on except for God. Joseph just played his part and did what he was supposed to at the time with no information that he was given on faith. But at the end, confronting his brothers, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good that so many people would be left alive. God's plans are complete, ultimate, and perfect. But he does use just ordinary people like Joseph, a backwater town from a farmer to become prime minister all of a sudden. Raised him up. It wasn't because of voting. It wasn't because of politics. God raised Joseph up. Did the same for David. Simple sheep herder. Simple harp player. Simple brave man who took out a guy with a sling. And now you're king. I raise up kings. I put them down, says God. But it's very interesting because God's governance is upon all nations of the world, not just America. Jonah 4, 10 through 11, quote, Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, but that which thou hast not labored, neither madest it to grow, which came up in a night, and also perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than ten, sorry, more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. So in other words, God sent Jonah not to an Israelite city, but to Nineveh, a pagan city, and he told them to repent, to flat-out repent. You're going to have to repent, or I'm going to destroy you. In other words, God is governing the world. No one's getting away with anything. God's not missing anything. Sodom, Gomorrah, Jericho, I, the cities go on. God sweeping in and wiping them out. One after the next, after the next in judgment. And that has been going on since the flood, since the beginning. Judgments, small but sure. And happening now in our times as well is that we've lost this vision, this understanding of how God works. And then, of course, the last one which I left. No man has any power, authority, or position that was not personally given them by God. John 19, 10-11, Then said Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, 
thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. This is very simple. No one has power, authority, or position that God hasn't personally given it to. Your bubble does not make or break the world. Your picketing, your campaigning, none of that makes or breaks the world. See, unlike George Carlin, he saw everything as bought and paid for years ago because he believes humanistic evil men with their dirty money and scheming are controlling the world, an Illuminati, if you will. We also believe in a certain type of concept like that. Everything has been bought and paid for a long time ago. Jesus bought and paid for it with his body and blood. And he now governs all things. And he has been given that by his Father, who has been governing things since the beginning. There is a conspiracy, a worldwide conspiracy. There is a plan that is in effect. And your voting means nothing. Your voting is not going to stop the plan. Now, you might be part of the plan. Your little bubble might be part of the plan. But your little bubble isn't making the difference. It is God that makes the difference. He decides the next president. This foolish idea that we're going to, with a mail-in ballot or walking in and filling in a bubble, are going to change the world is silly. Now, God does use men to perform tasks and to do things, no doubt. But he also does it all on his own. And it doesn't matter what you do. So cast your vote. I encourage voting. I'm not George Carlin. I encourage voting. I vote myself. However, I don't go in person as norm. I prefer just to do mail-in ballot. But hey, I'm not concerned about people trying to steal my vote. Because it doesn't matter. If somebody did steal my vote in the mail, it wouldn't matter. God has taken that into account one way or the other. Somebody might steal my one vote, and then maybe on the other side... They cheat as well, and therefore there's a hundred votes to the one's vote that they stole. Who knows what happens with these things. But it does take faith. Either you have faith in yourself and mankind and their ability to run an election and to count votes properly, or you have trust that God's got it all under control, and despite what evil men try to do, every single thing has been planned out from the beginning. And you can have confidence and sit back and relax, cast your vote, and let you, your, the purposes that God has unfold. But it's not going to affect anything, one way or the other. Now, a couple things that i like to point out before I move on to the next part of this, because we have not gotten to the bedroom part. This is just the ballot box. And the ballot box, you don't have power there. God does. But a couple things i like to discuss. Because you're voting for somebody and putting someone in power and voting for them. People think you're voting for somebody when you're casting your vote. I'll give you a little thing about what I, I view voting as. There are no people that, that I, I vote for, per se. I vote against. Now, in America, people like to say, well, we don't have a two-party system. Well, that's true. How many people did you see up there on the presidential debate? Did you see more than two? I only saw two up there. And so people can vote third party. They can write their own name in. But... History has proven that it's going to be one of those two people who are going to be president. I mean, God could throw a little zinger in there. There's no debate. He can throw a zinger in there and say, well, Jeremy Walker from Florida is president of the United States all of a sudden. That's not going to happen, but God could do it if he decided to do it. 
But otherwise, there's a two-party system in America, and one or two people are going to get a majority of the votes, quote-unquote, the majority of the votes, and one of those two people are going to be the president. That's just the way it's been since my lifetime, and that's the way it's seeming that God has allowed it to, to operate. But you're not putting somebody in power, per se, because I can't say there's one single person that I looked at and said, oh, great president, I want that person. I look at it and say, well, this person is a lot better than the other guy. A lot better. But not somebody per se. I'm like, whew, that's a good godly man. I want to have that person in charge. Now, I will say God uses people. Like, you look at President Trump. I definitely believe that God has used President Trump. But I also say that God used Obama. And God used Bill, uh, President Bush Jr. And he used Clinton. And he used Bush Sr., and Reagan, and every other president that's ever been in the United States of America, all the way back to George Washington. They've all been used by God. Every one of them. Every one of them have been appointed by God personally. So the next thing is this. That's why I view voting as against somebody, not for somebody. People like the idea that you must vote for somebody that meets biblical qualifications as laid out in Scripture. And I've had people do that and try to say that kind of stuff. Well, if you're trying to vote for somebody who meets these qualifications, um, you're going to be George Carlin, you're going to be one of the Quakers, and you're not going to vote because there's nobody who meets the qualifications for it that I have seen who's been running. Now, there was a quick story, which I won't go into too much. There was a man who tried to say this, and uh, it was the last election, not it was before uh, Trump's recent election against Hillary, and uh, he was saying he couldn't vote for people that were in it. Because they didn't meet the biblical qualifications. So he went through the biblical qualifications, which there are there in the Bible. And it's talking about when you raise up a king and you choose one, yada, yada, yada. And um, I remember asking the guy, I said, okay, well, we can't vote for these two, the primary two people, the Republican candidate, the Democratic candidate. You can't vote for these people. Okay, fine. Who are you going to vote for? And I had to press the guy. finally gave me an answer. And I said, okay, that's who you're voting for. Fine. Now let's go back through these qualifications that you just laid out, and let's see if they actually meet them like you said they are. And, of course, by the end, the guy said, well, no, it doesn't meet all of them, but he's closer. He's closer than the other people. I said, well, okay. So let's go back to the concept that you accuse people of lesser of two evils, but you're just doing the same thing, which is, well, he's less evil than the rest. He's not where he should be, but he's a lot better than the other people. Fine. You're not. You're voting for a man. You're, therefore, you're not going to get anything but... but a lesser evil. They're all lesser evils. Even when God was saying, here are the requirements. Um, I haven't met a single person in the Bible that met them or kept them. They all had problems. I'm sure people are going to throw up some things. You know, have your own thoughts. But here it comes down to American politics. You try to vote that way, go ahead and vote that way. If it makes you feel better, if you think it's because it's going to hold on to your personal um, sanctity, go ahead and do so. Write your own name in. Write your pastor's name in. Whatever. All it comes down to is the first points we're making. God is going to have the person in charge he wants in charge. And very often, that can be a very evil person. A very evil person. Despite whichever vote you cast. And then, of course, your, your votes actually count is what people think. And I kind of went through that a little bit. The idea that your vote is actually counted um, is really takes a lot of faith. I just don't have that much faith. And uh, I believe that God's got it all in the control. I'll cast my vote and uh, leave it in God's hands. And uh, right now, in this case, if we have two candidates that are out there, Biden and Trump, I'm going to vote Trump because, of course, he is going to do a lot more things that are beneficial to individuals, families, and the country 
versus what Biden wants to do, which is run, run on a ticket of covetousness, theft, and envy, and giving things away for free, which all are all against the Ten Commandments entirely. And uh, so you just, I don't think there's any way around it. If you're looking at somebody going, well, which person is better? Uh, it's not complicated. Trump's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but he's much improved where Biden is concerned. He was better than Obama's positions and stances, much better than Hillary's. And as I said before, I don't vote for somebody I'm voting against. And in this case, if my choices were Biden or Hillary or Trump, I want President Trump. And uh, last but not least, we kind of already touched off this, but governments and lawmakers direct nations. Um, they don't. God turns their hearts any way he wants, and he's been doing it since the beginning of time. And so to people to think that anything's out of control is ridiculous. Ridiculous to think that anything's out of control. When evil people are in charge, God put them there. That's right. God put them there. Why? For his purpose. You don't need to know it. In fact, it's above your pay grade. My favorite story is when Job was confronted by God because Job, you know, felt slighted that he lost all of his wealth. He lost his ten kids. He lost his health. He felt slighted, and his friends continued to berate him, and he said, I've done nothing worthy of this. And then when he got his chance to ask, why, God, have you done this to me? He found out that he shouldn't have asked the question or even thought about it. Because what God is doing and has done is so far above our puny understandings and minds. The fact that you can think that you are going to sit down and understand what's best for America, best for the country, and have a plan that incorporates every single person, every single nation, every single plot, every single scheme, and you are going to work it out by picking the right person, your third-party candidate who is a constitutionalist or whatever it might be. You're ridiculous. You don't understand how God governs because he uses us all, including Pharaoh, who he raised up for his purpose, not necessarily for your purpose or mine. So... Let's jump into the next part here. I think I kind of beat that like a dead horse. But hopefully, that part's gotten across to you. Vote, but have trust in God. Focus on what you can control. The bedroom versus the ballot box. The ballot box is something where you're going to walk in and fill in a bubble. It's really nothing. And then you have to have trust and faith that that actually is counted. But that's not something you control. It's just something that you filled in a bubble on. But things that you do control are far, far, far more important. And they're far more neglected. People will talk endlessly about elections and get heated about it, but refuse to talk about their own personal lives. First of all, what is man's overall duty in this life, really? Well, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14 tells us, quote, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So that is your purpose in life. Your purpose in life is to obey God, to do what God says. That is the purpose 
of man to keep his commandments. Now, you could apply this, of course, to voting, and people get too caught up in it about how they're going to vote, and then spend little to no time with how they're treating their wife, how they're performing at work, how they're treating their staff, how they're teaching their children, how they're disciplining their children, how they're treating their neighbor, how they're treating their pastor, how they're treating... You get the idea. You're supposed to fear God. Fearing God is hating evil. But are you, as a family, complicit with family sins? Do you ostracize family? Do you separate from them if they refuse to repent? Is this something you do? Or are you more concerned about your vote and your bubble box doing that right than you are how you treat your family, your wife, what you stand for, what you teach, what you propagate in your own personal life, so worried and consumed about what some politician will do, and you're complicit in it, but no concern at all about yourself. That's how silly it is. There are so many people that I know. When it comes down to it, rubber hits the road. There is sin in the family or personal sins. Those are swept under the rug. We just all want to get along. We do not want to have people not like us. We don't want to split and separate our family, even though Jesus said, I did not come to bring your family together. I came to bring a sword and to divide father and mother, son and daughter, yada, yada, yada. But somehow that's not true for my family. We all just get along. There's no problems in our families. There's no problems in our churches. We can all just be good old friends with everybody. Well, that's not the case. And see, if you are more concerned with your personal life, what you're having to do, then maybe you might be benefited by this. But you're going to be concerned about the election and what the president does. Worry about yourself. Because we all, speaking to myself included, we all have to give an account for everything we've done. Everything. Good or evil. You ever stopped and thought about that for half a second? Everything you've done? The horror. Now I understand why David prayed as he did in Psalms 25 about asking God not to remember his sins, but only to remember God's mercies towards him. God's mercies towards him. Because this is where we are really going to be judged, not on who you voted for. All the little things you do in life are more important and whose bubble you fill in. You didn't have a politician who wrecked your life. You wrecked it yourself. So what should man be focusing on during his life? Ecclesiastes 9, 7-12. This is actually really fun. It's one of my new favorite passages, as it were. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy. And drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of thy life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity, for that is thy portion in this life, and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun." Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, 
For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. But time and chance happeneth to them all. For man also knoweth not his time, as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in a snare, so are the sons of men snared in the evil time, when it falleth suddenly upon them. Unquote. This is what we're supposed to be doing in this life. We're supposed to be eating with joy. Enjoy your food. Don't become a glutton. But darn it, don't just eat to eat. Eat something you enjoy. Eat food you like. Go out there and find something. Learn how to make something that just makes your mouth water. That's what God wants you to do. He wants you to drink your wine with a merry heart. Get out there, get yourself some alcohol, and get yourself a drink. Now, don't become a drunk. Don't go into a wine-bibbing, of course. But here it is, God's telling us, in our life, He wants us to have a merry heart. And, yes, alcohol, strong drink, is given for that purpose. Because God now accepts our works. Right now, we get to earn reward, right here and now. And yes, you could say, I'm going to try to fill in the bubble with the best candidate that I have, and God's going to take that into account. But that's one thing that you did in four years, which may or may not be counted. And all the other little things that you do day in and day out and day in and day out, those things are the things you don't focus on. Those are the things that you don't pay attention to. You're going to argue with people that, and I had people do this, that drinking alcohol is always evil. But here God's saying, drink your wine, man. You get yourself a, a merry heart. People are always concerned about this, where you're eating too many things that you shouldn't eat, too many cupcakes and high in fats. You eat food that makes you happy. Why? Well, you don't want to die early. You're going to have to die from all that cholesterol and too much sugar content and that alcohol. It says here that you don't know when you're going to die. You could be gone tomorrow. And all the refraining from eating that cupcake that you wanted or refusing to imbibe in alcohol because it makes you happy and giddy, that's not something that you're going to be judged on. It's something that God's saying you should have done it. Now, there are limitations, of course. You shouldn't drink too much. You shouldn't eat too much. If you find that you're gaining too much weight, you might have to cut down on how much you're doing. Do some intermittent fasting. But it doesn't mean that you don't eat the things you do want to eat. Don't go on Jenny Craig and eat microwavable meals that you don't even like to lose weight. Look into the health people. I have seen many people go on these diets, people I know personally, and have done absolutely wonderful, but they still eat good foods that they like to eat. You can still do these things without going overboard and still have a great life. It is possible, but God wants you to enjoy it. He wants you also to be joyful with your wife. The bedroom. Don't view the bedroom as a place that is somewhat like a chore. It should be a place that you want to be in. It should be something that you enjoy. If your wife isn't that happy about the situation sometimes, because women and men are different, maybe, just maybe, as the husband you might want to work on that a little more so she's a bit happier. Maybe it's not about you. Maybe it's also about her. And maybe, you know, wife, maybe 
it is the case that men in general are happier to be in the bedroom in general than women are, at least as you know, often, I suppose, is a good word for it. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't want him to be happy and he to want her to be happy. It goes both directions. But the bedroom is a place that you should absolutely 100% enjoy. God gave it to us not just for procreation, but also for recreation. And that's something that God wants you to do. And if it's not something that you're enjoying, if it's something that you're causing somebody to despise because you're upset that they want to have marital relations more than once a month, or whom, whatever crazy people do, then you're not following God's commands to be joyful in the bedroom. Now, you don't know what's going to happen to you today. You don't know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. And that's why your little bubble for Biden or for Trump or for someone else isn't going to matter because you might be gone tomorrow. You don't govern the world. You don't have to worry about that level of stress. And that's also part of what this is talking about. What you do in the bedroom is more important than what you do in the ballot box. How you take care of your wife, if you make her happy, if you are trying purposely to procreate, or if you're trying to prevent, if you're wanting to bring more life into this world, or if you're wanting to not bring more life into this world. So here are some of the things that I think are important about those subjects. Also, the bedroom when it's neglected, has a problem. If you as a person, a man or a woman, are, once again, if you are going to be a threat to your family instead of a blessing to your family, here's something that happens in Proverbs 5, 15 through 23, which is a danger to the bedroom and to society, to your family and to yourself, more than the ballot box. Quote, drink waters out of thine own cistern and running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad in rivers of water in the streets. Let them be only thine and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breasts satisfy thee at all times and be thou ravished always with her love. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman? and embrace the bosom of a stranger. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. He shall die without instruction. In the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. Unquote. Now the here is talking about specifically a husband wanting to have sexual relations with his wife. These are the waters from his cistern. He doesn't share them in anybody else. These belong only to him. He is going to have a blessed fountain. If a blessed fountain, men, you should be able to figure this out, means he's able to perform. Um, means God wants you to be able to live long and still be able to enjoy the marriage bed. This is what one of the blessings is. I wonder if you've ever heard somebody say that before. I know I haven't. And uh, this part here, um, is something that I think men would find a tremendous blessing. Uh, Abraham was over a hundred and something years old and was still able to have children, which means he was still able to enjoy the marriage bed even well over his in hundreds. 
Now, what is the opposite thing that is plaguing our world today? Well, men are suffering from impotence, which means they can't perform as God would like them to do so. But here, a blessing for somebody who is ravished with his own wife. This is for women. They want men to find them attractive, specifically their husband. They want all their husband's affections and attractions to be centered only on them. They do not want their husband looking at somebody else. They want all attractions to be on them and them alone. Nothing is worse, and I have seen this, from women who, as they've gotten older, have had their husband, or most often that I've seen, somebody they never even married, boyfriend of sorts, who leaves them for a much younger woman. Because as we're talking about here, it was just about the physicality of it all. And as her body changed and got older, he was no longer attracted to her, but was now attracted to somebody much, much younger because that was what he was attracted to and only was her physical appearance. But here is what we're talking about. A man is supposed to be absolutely ravished, always wanting and only having his lust focused on his wife. Now that is what God wants from men for women. And yes, women, your focus should be on your husband as well. You should always want his attention, not somebody else's attention. You should only want your husband's attention, and he should be absolutely focused on it. And once again, let her breast satisfy thee at all times and be ravished with her love. Why would you be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosoms of a stranger? Focused only on your wife 110%. The bedroom is very, very important to God. He says this should be important to you. This is where the husband-wife bond starts. And the husband-wife bond is if they don't have it, the family falls apart. If the family falls apart, society unravels and falls apart as well. And so the bedroom is a million times more important than the ballot box. And partly because it is something that we are the ones who have control over. Is this something that you focus on? Is this something that you are even aware that you're supposed to be doing and cognitive about? If you want to really make a difference in your life, then you should pay attention to this. If you really want to have a better marriage, this is what you should be doing. Constantly, constantly, almost addictedly attracted to your spouse and looking at all others as something to be not desired in the least. No attraction at all. But your wife is something that you are absolutely cannot satiate your desire for her. And I guarantee you that is what women want anyways. Absolute 100% focus. So I think that's enough to explain a little bit to why these things are important. Because this is something you can affect on a daily basis. You're going to be judged for all of it. If you aren't ravished enough with your wife, if you did not seek to be ravished by your husband, then these are things you're going to have to answer for. Not the ballot box. What you do inside your bedroom is more important than what anybody does in a ballot box. How you treat your family, what you focus on yourself, these things are of the utmost importance. I'm going to end this episode with one last thing. 
Because the question comes down to, as we answered before, George Carlin didn't care what happened to the world. But people want to turn it around, and I think everybody does want to make an influence in the world. So what will turn around a nation? I'm going to go back to Jonah for this. Jonah 3, 5 through 10. Quote, So the people of Nineveh believed God, and they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them even down to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned away from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Unquote. That's how you turn around a nation. Every single person is concerned about their sin, their obedience to God. Not their neighbor, not their stranger, themselves. How are you going to change the nation? Worrying about the sins of other people going to abortion mills? No. Worried about the sins of politicians and talking about it incessantly? No. Worried about the ballot box and making the right vote and demonizing others who don't vote the way you do because you have the right candidate and they are voting for the lesser of two evils? No. How is the nation going to get turned around from the bottom up? See, George Carlin had his finger on it. He just couldn't finish the rest of it. As a non-Christian, he couldn't see the hope that God has. He couldn't see that a nation could turn to God like Nineveh did. These people in Nineveh were so terrible, God was ready to wipe them off the planet. And yet, he forgave them because they repented of their sins acknowledged God's authority, and turned away from their sins. Didn't just talk about it. Didn't just pray about it. They didn't pass laws to make things illegal, which I think is good, though. Of course, passing laws to make things illegal is good. But what they did was they turned from their personal sins. And then God changed his mind, and the nation was turned around, at least forgiven for a time. But that's what it has to take. The power is not in the ballot box. The power is in the individual and in the bedroom. Our personal sins. What we do every day, day in and day out. What you think about. What you spend your time thinking about. What you spend your time doing. What you spend your time promoting. What, how much time you spend with your wife. How much time you spend with your children. What you do with your children. Do you teach your children? To obey God's commandments? Or do you teach your children that God's commandments are done away with? Are you ravished with your wife? Do you want to be ravished by your husband? 
or is it a chore? See, we have to ask ourselves these questions. If we want our nation to get better, we focus on ourselves. And if you focus on yourself, then maybe your neighbor can focus on themselves. And as the parable goes, why would you be trying to pull out the mite that's in somebody else's eye when you have a log sticking out of yours? Why be so focused and concerned about politics in the ballot box when your life is in shambles and you know it? Your life has problems and you know it. And you want the world to change, but you're not willing to change yourself. You want the world to repent of its evil, but you're not repenting of yours. So I want everybody to be, leave, at least leave you with those thoughts. Something to think about, about how we should act, what we should really be focusing on. And I do think you should vote. Get out there and vote. Don't, don't not vote. But just don't have confidence that your vote is going to change national politics. It's just not something that's going to happen. So, thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening to my thoughts on the subject. I hope you place your trust in God's providence and you spend more time focusing on your life and your bedroom then you do politics. Thank you, and God bless.